Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The new head of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency will face a tough job cleaning up the environment and the agency itself. What I hear from employees is they're ashamed to tell their neighbors and friends where they work because they're asked what they're doing about global warming and they have to admit they're doing nothing. And to them, it's quite distressing. Also, delivering radio's power to the people where there is no power. There is no infrastructure in South Sudan, uh, which means there's no electricity. So in some of our stations, we use uh, solar and wind power. Radio and renewable power help renew a society destroyed by decades of civil war. And nature's sounds create seasonal songs. These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Join the choir. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Kerwood. President-elect Barack Obama is wasting no time assembling his cabinet, but still to be named as his choice to head up the Environmental Protection Agency. Under the Bush presidency, the EPA has been a constant source of controversy. Allegations of lax enforcement and manipulation of scientific studies spark fights in Congress and lawsuits before the nation's highest court. Living on Earth, Jeff Young has a look at what's happened to the agency and the job that lies ahead for the next EPA chief. You didn't have to follow the news to know the Environmental Protection Agency had an image problem. All you had to do was watch The Simpsons movie. The villain was the head of the EPA. I've narrowed your choices down to five options. I need to know what I'm approving. Knowing things is overrated. Okay. How did one of the world's premier environmental agencies become the punchline to a pop culture joke? Many who worked in EPA say eight years of the Bush administration left an agency with a disregard for science, a discouraged workforce, and decreased enforcement of laws meant to protect the air, water, and public health. And both those who criticize the agency and defend it agree it will not be easy for President Obama's new leaders to change things. Well, the Bush administration's been around for eight years, and their agenda was pretty radical. And it does mean that the Obama administration is going to have some work turning the ship around. It's not simply a matter of replacing a few people at the top. That's Eric Schaefer, who joined EPA under the first President Bush. As head of civil enforcement, Schaefer led efforts to clean up refineries and power plants. But early in 2001, he realized this President Bush was taking the agency in a different direction. You you got this kind of sick feeling in the pit of your stomach that facts were not going to matter and that science wasn't really going to have much place in the discussion. This was very political. Schaefer quit and started a private watchdog group called Environmental Integrity Project, hounding the agency on things like changes to the Clean Air Act, a weak mercury emissions rule, and inaction on global warming. Courts eventually threw out most of the Bush EPA proposals. But Schaefer says even when the Bush EPA lost, it won. These battles are mostly about buying time. For, for a lot of these guys, they're smart enough to know they're going to lose, but they benefit from, from the game. And the game is put a bad rule forward, even if it 
loses, it'll buy us five, six, seven years until we have to comply with a standard. That is a victory. That's the sort of thing the Obama transition team is now hearing about. The team is led by Carol Browner, who led the EPA for much of the 90s under President Clinton. I think that the last eight years was not just about inattention. It wasn't like they were just sort of not doing anything. They were actively looking at how to change the decision-making paradigm, to move it away from the historic, you know, protect the public's health, protect the public welfare, whatever the different statutes are that EPA has responsibility for. They've managed to really change the fundamentals of virtually every single one of them. Browner has high praise for EPA workers, but there are signs of trouble there, too. A survey by the Union of Concerned Scientists found nearly 900 EPA scientists around the country said they had felt political interference in their work. Jeff Rook runs a group called PEER, Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, which he calls a giant shelter for battered government workers. Rook heard a lot from EPA's workers. Some were upset that the agency closed some of its world-class research libraries. At one point, I got a, a call from an anguished librarian on his cell phone, and he'd been ordered to recycle volumes, and he was saving them in the cafeteria and wanting to know what his rights were. Rook says morale got so low that unions representing thousands of EPA workers sent an unprecedented letter to Administrator Stephen Johnson, accusing him of violating their trust. The letter cited the agency head's decision to ignore staff advice on the question of regulating greenhouse gases. What I hear from employees is they're ashamed to tell their neighbors and friends where they work because... They're asked what they're doing about global warming, and they have to admit they're doing nothing. They're facing, in their mind, the biggest environmental crisis in their lifetimes, and they're not allowed to work on it. And to them, it's quite distressing. Rook says low morale worsens workforce losses already underway because many EPA workers are reaching retirement age. It's something EPA engineer Hugh Kaufman sees firsthand. Kaufman joined EPA at its creation and calls the Bush years an attempt to destroy the agency. The preponderance of people brought in to the agency over the last eight years uh, were basically a very sophisticated wrecking crew. And so the old timers, most of the old timers have taken early retirement uh, or left. And uh, basically EPA has been hollowed out. So uh, the agency is going to have to be rebuilt. EPA Administrator Johnson was not available for comment for this story. One of his former deputies defended the Bush EPA. Jeff Homestead led EPA's air office under Bush for five years. He was responsible for many of the decisions that critics say favored industry over the environment. I guess I have to say I kind of resent the premise of your question, that somehow if something is good for industry, it has to be bad for the environment. That's just not true. Homestead says the Bush EPA pushed for two of the biggest public health victories in the agency's history, a clean air rule to limit power plant emissions and a cleanup of off-road diesel engines. And Homestead has a warning for the new EPA team if it wants to get rid of rules and procedures he helped put in place. It's not nearly as easy as you think. The regulatory apparatus is cumbersome. And it's unrealistic to think that anyone can come in and just immediately change things around. That's not the way the system is designed to work. EPA veterans Eric Schaefer and Hugh Kaufman say that's why Obama should appoint someone strong and savvy who can shake things up. But the man who campaigned on a message of change 
may find EPA a tough place to make change happen. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. With just a few weeks left to his term as president, George W. Bush is seeking to burnish a blue-green legacy. Two years ago, Mr. Bush put 140,000 square miles of Pacific Ocean north of Hawaii off limits to oil drilling and fishing. Now the president hopes to protect another vast area of the ocean, this one 4,000 miles west of Hawaii. It includes three of the remote northern Mariana Islands and the Mariana Trench, the deepest spot in the ocean, a gash in the Earth's crust nearly seven miles down. The proposal has some influential supporters, including First Lady Laura Bush, and prominent opponents. Among those trying to sink the president's plan to create this national marine monument is Vice President Dick Cheney and nearly all of the elected officials of Micronesia. But many residents want to win federal protection, including Andrew Salas, vice president of the organization Friends of the Monument. Mr. Salas, welcome. Thank you. Which three islands are we talking about? Uh, Mark, Mark Ashenshan, and Rakus. The water surrounding those three islands. So how many square miles are we talking here? About 115,000. I, I got to tell you, the, the one that's, uh, that was named two years ago is 140,000. That's the reason why we came to D.C. This is my first trip to D.C., and I, I want to ask the good president to please make it bigger than, than the islands in Hawaii. So how much bigger? Maybe uh, an inch bigger. <laughs> so those kind of bragging rights? Yes, sir. Nobody remembers second place in the World Series or the second place at the uh, Super Bowl. You always remember the champ. Well, how would that help the people of uh, the nor- Northern Mariana? Well, you know, you know, uh, have you ever been to the Northern Marianas Island? No, I haven't. Okay, we are very tiny island chains in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And we have a population that fluctuates anywhere between 50 to 80,000. We have become a minority in our islands because of the economic development that happened in our islands when we became part of, part of the United States. And it would help us greatly because over the past few years, we've become a place where, you know, the CNN has reported us as being, you know, enslaving our guest workers locking them up in their rooms and abusing 16-year-old waitresses. The reason why we want this thing to be larger is the fact that we can use it, we can rebrand it. We have a place called Mariana's Visitors Authority that will go out and rebrand the Commonwealth as the largest marine protected area in the world. So it would be a retooling of our ability to attract tourists to our Commonwealth. Mr. Sells, what would... um protection under this marine reserve do for the area? Well, for once, you know, those three islands, sir, are they're about 300 miles from Saipan. Right now, we don't have the means. It is protected by constitution, but we do not have the means to patrol that area and protect it. As a matter of fact, about maybe seven or eight weeks ago, we caught a Taiwanese ship there poaching in our waters. So at the most basic, fundamental protection is at least to keep outsiders away from our islands and to stop poaching our fish and our waters. Look at what's happening with the fish stocks all over the world. This will provide an area where fish can be protected, and when they get big, they can lay an abundance of eggs and they can go out outside the protected areas and everybody can benefit from it. Strange. I mean, here you've got Laura Bush and the president supporting this, yeah, and they're 
being opposed by the Vice President Cheney. <laughs> well, it's not a perfect world, but we try our best. You know, um, the governor of the Commonwealth thinks of this as another federal intrusion, and it's not. In our possession today, we have original copies of over 6,000 signatures from our people, from our beautiful Commonwealth that signed in support of this monument. Mr. Samos, what was this, this place like um, when you were young? Oh, it's beautiful. And that's why we, you know, I, I, Beach Road is our main road, our primary road when I was growing up. And when the fish would come in through the lagoon, our blue water became really dark. And every islander that was passing by, whether driving, bicycling, or walking, all they had to do was come up to the beach and they'd get a coffee can full of whatever fish was in the lagoon. But now you gotta go miles to fish. And we are hoping that President Bush takes the time to make a bold move to declare it a marine monument so that the people of the Commonwealth can have a place where young people can remember, like I remembered 30 years ago, 40 years ago, about the beauty of our lagoon on Beach Road. Well, Mr. Salas, I want to thank you very much. Thank you, sir. It's my pleasure. Andrew Salas is vice president of Friends of the Monument, a group seeking protection for the northern Mariana Islands. Just ahead, the economy hits the brakes, sending ethanol producers into a skid. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. It was just a few months ago that the ethanol industry was in high gear, with the price of gas at the pump soaring. The demand for ethanol, a fuel substitute made mostly from corn, was sky high, making corn growers and ethanol producers very happy and consumers very sad. Well, what a difference a few weeks make. The economy has taken a sudden turn for the worse, driving the demand for gas and ethanol into a ditch. Jim Lane is editor of the online daily Biofuels Digest. Mr. Lane, it's always good talking to you. Good to be here. You know, until recently, the ethanol biz had been booming. I mean, what, just last year, the number of uh, ethanol processing plants in the United States increased by 60%. That's true. It was a boom business. And it's still booming in terms of supply. There's plenty of capacity coming online, but but it's hard to hard to make it a business these days. 15% are already in bankruptcy of, of the ethanol supply in the country, and, and that's really a function of the economics of the business because it's the spread between the price of the feedstock, which is usually corn, and that's gone up and down a lot this year. It's caused a lot of dislocation. And, of course, it's a capital-intensive business. It costs a lot of money to put an ethanol plant together. And and it's tough to find capital in these uh, strange economic times that we find ourselves in. Seems like it's a feast or famine. Uh, the corn prices were 2 bucks a, a bushel. Then they went to $8 a bushel. And now they're down to about 3 $3.5. Yeah, they were at 2 for a long time, 40 years at 2. And they did uh, take a large uh, leap into the seven eight dollar range that had more to do with the fact that there was a real big crop failure in Europe and a lot of speculative money also moved into the market in the spring so it was temporary but boy it was tough and a lot of these ethanol producers got scared locked in when they saw prices at around six dollars and said hey let's let's go for that well now they're down to 350 and and that's why they're declaring bankruptcy left right and center oh so they bought it high and now they got to sell it low 
That's right. The price of ethanol, you can get ethanol, gallon of ethanol in Sacramento for $1.19 a gallon uh, for E85. It's 85% ethanol, and you just can't make a business when it's about $1.05 just for the corn, so without anything else. Well, the debate this summer when prices were really high was the question of, you know, can we feed and fuel the country with corn? Yeah, that was a very big debate this summer, food versus fuel, and a lot of people said that the um, increase in the use of corn for fuel was what was causing the price increase, well, uh, of uh, food and, and other items. I, I think we have a good answer on that right now because the price of most grains are down 50 to 60 percent, soy, wheat, and corn, but the uh, price of the uh, basket of goods at the supermarket has not gone down yet. So th- there is some linkage, but it's a very, very weak link. Certainly, we're going to grow our, our um, our food stock first, and with the residual land, we're going to produce um, fuel and energy crops. But we also can use a lot of the litter and the agricultural residue that has never been used properly can be used to make fuel. So it's it's kind of a one plus one equals three situation if you get it right. And that's that's where the industry is heading, and we certainly expect to be there in the next few years. So you mean moving away from corn and sugar and using other things and creating cellulosic ethanol? It's happening right now. They've been at the pilot stage and the demonstration scale for some time, but the uh, the first plants at the 100 million gallon level will be opening in around 2010 or 2011, and those will be using all kinds of residues. They use municipal solid waste, they use landfill, they use uh, leaf litter, all kinds of useless material that um, is certainly better powering your car than it is creating a Mount Garbage outside your municipalities. The United States uh, subsidizes uh, ethanol production. Going back to what, a new law in 2007, it required the amount of ethanol that must be produced every year. And it's going up, I guess. Uh, it's in this year, it's going to be like 9 billion gallons. In 2022, it's going to be 36 billion gallons. And that's isn't that regardless of demand? Well, the demand will be there for fuel, for sure. It's just a question of how much we're going to have renewable energy as a, as a component of the fuel, because it's replacing, you know, oil-based gasoline is really what it's replacing. And the um, mandate is essential if we're going to reach anywhere near the kind of targets that we're talking about, even under the Kyoto Treaty and also the successor treaty that's being negotiated right now for climate change. We're talking about an 80% reduction in emissions between now and 2050 or thereabouts. And there's just no way to get there without putting a much better uh, fuel on the street. And ethanol is the the homemade and uh, homegrown and available solution we have now. So it's important that we do have that mandate in place. Cars right now can only run on about uh, 10% ethanol in the United States. At least that's what most warranties say. And we're at that point. Next year, uh, if we're going to use all this, uh, uh, these billions of dollars of ethanol that are going to be produced and mandated for production, uh, that's going to go up. Most of the car makers that make E10-compatible cars, the same car makers will make cars in Brazil that run on 22% and 24% ethanol. So they, they know how to do it. It's, it's not a question of, of whether that we have the technology. It's just a question of having the time to change over our infrastructure. And GM has been a leader in developing what they call flex fuel vehicles that are capable of running up to 85% ethanol. And they've done a good job of getting them out in the street, and they've committed to half of new vehicles in their in their production lineup being flex fuel enabled by 2012. So they're they're making a lot of progress. Well, you're the chairman of the American Biofuels Council. Um, 
How does it look in the coming year for your for your companies? Well, what we see is the industry is going to go through a period of consolidation, and it needs to. There are over 160 different uh, ethanol-producing companies in the United States, and that number needs to come down. And that consolidation we'll be seeing over the next year, and we'll also be seeing the, the coming of all kinds of new technologies like cellulosic ethanol that you mentioned, and also some, some new technologies based on gasification and fast pyrolysis that will be able to increase the yields that we get when we use things like landfill waste. And so it's, uh, we're entering technologically perhaps the most exciting time in the, in the industry's history. It just comes at a very difficult time in terms of raising capital to, to build all these plants. And probably for the first time, we're facing a situation where the technology path is less difficult than the financing path. It's been the other way around for a number of years. Well, Jim Lane, thank you very much. Been a pleasure, Bruce. Jim Lane is the editor of the online daily Biofuels Digest and chairman of the American Biofuels Council. Coming up, going with the flow of the Gulf Stream. But first, this cool fix for a hot planet. When you hear the word fungus, you probably think of mushrooms or the stuff that grows between your toes after walking barefoot in a locker room. But when scientists from Montana State University hear the term fungus, they think of diesel fuel. That's because they've discovered a fungal species that produces hydrocarbons identical to many of those found in diesel. The scientists believe this fungal fuel, or mycodiesel, could be put directly into diesel car engines with little or no need for modification. The fungus was first found in the Patagonia rainforest where it grows on trees. It feeds on the tree's organic matter, including cellulose, the part of plants the animals can't digest and it turns that cellulose into diesel. That's exciting news to scientists because cellulose is a major component of every plant on Earth and can be grown with minimal input of land, fertilizer, and fossil fuels. And while other groups of scientists are working out the details of making ethanol from cellulose, the Montana State team believes that using fungus to make diesel from cellulose will be an easier task. One small catch is that researchers aren't yet sure how efficient the process is. Ultimately, they may end up taking the genes from the fungus and engineering other microbes that could turn cellulose into diesel more efficiently. In either case, we may soon have to start paying a little more respect to the fungus among us. That's this week's Cool Fix for a Hot Planet. I'm Jesse Martin. And if you've got a cool fix for a hot planet, we'd like to know about it. If we use your idea on the air, we'll send you a sleek electric blue living on earth tire gauge. Keep your tires properly inflated and you could save over $280 a year in fuel. That's according to a study done at Carnegie Mellon University. Call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or email coolfix, that's one word, at LOE.org. That's coolfix at LOE.org. runs through it, the Atlantic Ocean, that is. While we call it the Gulf Stream, the mighty flow of water off our East Coast really behaves like a river in the ocean, writes Stan Ulansky. Ulansky teaches geology and environmental science at James Madison University, and his new book is called The Gulf Stream, Tiny Plankton, Giant Bluefin, and the Amazing Story of the Powerful River in the Atlantic. 
Stan Yulansky, thanks for joining us. Ah, my pleasure to be here. Thank you. You know, we, we all think we know what the Gulf Stream is, but when I was reading your book, I realized I didn't know what the Gulf Stream was. A lot of people have heard about it, but when they really try to define it, they kind of fall short. And really what the Gulf Stream is, it's, it's actually part of a larger uh, circulation in the Atlantic Ocean called a gyra. And the Gulf Stream is one component of it found along the western part of the gyra. And essentially what it is is a strong, powerful, warm ocean current that starts in the southern part of Florida and flows along the eastern seaboard. You write that the uh, Gulf Stream is a wonderful place for sea life. Absolutely. It's a conduit, the sea highway for a uh, many, many organisms that basically are tropical organisms. Most of these have no means of moving like the tiny plankton. They literally go along with the flow. But then you have massive giant bluefin tuna that can reach up to 1,000 pounds. They spawn in the Gulf of Mexico and ride the Gulf Stream uh, northward, feeding in the uh, fertile, rich waters off the uh, New England coast. And sometimes they'll travel even all the way to Europe, still riding that same current. It's not so much a a stream. It's really a, a river. It kind of is like a river. Even though it doesn't have hard and fast banks, it does flow quite swiftly compared to its surroundings. Boy, I'll say, you write in the book, you say it transports more than 2 billion cubic feet of water every second. That's absolutely right. When you, In fact, when you compare the transport of the Gulf Stream compared to the Amazon and any of the other larger rivers throughout the world, it really dwarfs them. And it's warm. I was surprised that it's like 80 degrees. Yeah, that's really one of the major characteristics of the Gulf Stream. If you were taking the temperatures, you'll see the water temperatures around it are around 60, 65 degrees. And then you come to the Gulf Stream, and just in a short distance, maybe a few hundred yards, the temperature will jump up to about 80, 82 degrees Fahrenheit. And it goes deep, I guess. Gulf Stream is, yeah, they think of it as a surface current, but actually it extends about 2,000 to 2,500 feet below the surface, so that if you were down there, it would still pull you along at those great depths. But where does the Gulf Stream come from? What makes the Gulf Stream the Gulf Stream? Well, it, it's really a combination of factors. You've got to sort of think of it as a, a recipe. We'll, we'll take a little bit of the wind, take a little bit of the Earth's rotation, And what you create, you create a hill of water in the center of the ocean as the result of these two factors. When you sail across the Gulf Stream, can you see the difference? Very easily. You can see it uh, particularly with regard to its water color. There's a sharp boundary between the bluish-green water that is near the coast and the cobalt-blue water of the Gulf Stream. And the other thing that you can see is water clarity. The coastal waters have kind of uh, murky in appearance, while the Gulf Stream is almost really gin clear. You actually flew over the Gulf Stream in a small plane. I did fly over the Gulf Stream just to get sort of a more personal view of it. I've been on the Gulf Stream, sailed on the Gulf Stream, worked on the Gulf Stream, dove under the Gulf Stream. I said, hey, it might be kind of interesting to take it from a different perspective, a bird's eye view. You've really got a passion for this stream. Well, yes. Over the years, I've developed a a real passion and, and to be honest with you, a real concern and love of the Gulf Stream. It's it's probably one of the last vestiges of wilderness on, on the earth. Well, you share your interest in the Gulf Stream with Benjamin Franklin. Oh, absolutely. 
In fact, he took uh, three cruises across the Gulf Stream, taking in-depth measurements not only at the surface but also at the depth. And he produced uh, one of the first maps of the Gulf Stream that was used extensively by both American and English merchants. So if I was um, off the coast of Florida, put a message in a bottle and dumped it into the Gulf Stream, where do, where do you think it'd wind up? That's a real good question. In fact, that's how scientists really uh, first started to study currents. Uh, they put the old proverbial message in a bottle and uh, tried to track them. Now what they use are what are called little drift packets, just plastic envelopes where they put a little note in and put it in the water. And hopefully if somebody picks it on up, uh, they send it back with the information of where they got it, when they got it, and so on. So we still use this proverbial message in a bottle to track uh, currents. Did you ever drop a message in a bottle? No, I never did. I did put current meters in, uh, but the uh, meters that we put in were sort of stationary where we measured the Gulf Stream and other currents from the surface downward. I like what you say in the book, uh, if Christopher Columbus discovered the New World, Ponce de Leon discovered the way back. Yeah, that was really, really, really critical. As the Portuguese and the Spanish started to move towards the uh, New World, uh, looking for uh, gold particularly, it was important to get back. And how would they get back? Because one of the critical things was they would be going in, in cases against the winds, particularly the trade winds. And so Ponce de Leon, though he wasn't looking for the way back, it was fortuitous while searching for gold in Florida, found the Gulf Stream. I guess um, pirates have the Gulf Stream to thank for their bounty and booty. The pirates knew that the Spanish galleons leaving from Havana would have to take the path back between Florida and the Bahamas. So they actually set up a number of outposts and uh, plundered ships for decades. Global warming is now uh, affecting the planet. How is it affecting the Gulf Stream? Boy, that's really a, a big can of worms, both politically and, and scientifically. So one school of thought goes that uh, if the Gulf Stream stops, you can lead to an ice age. Or the other thing goes, global warming will lead to an ice age. Well, let me try to explain this as simply as, as I can. Ultimately, the Gulf Stream is not an entity in itself. It's part of a larger global conveyor belt. Uh, this global conveyor belt is kind of like the Earth's thermostat. It flows throughout the globe, both at the surface and at the deeper parts, and it moves water, both warm and cold water. And so the idea of this conveyor belt stopped, well, then temperatures would change. If you had global warming, that could lead to melting of the ice caps and the glaciers, puts a tremendous amount of fresh water in the North Atlantic. This fresh water would decrease the density of the Gulf Stream, and so part of the Gulf Stream that sinks would no longer sink, and therefore that whole conveyor belt would be disrupted, and the scenario goes, if you disrupt the conveyor belt, you prevent some of the heat being transported, hence uh, beginning of the Ice Age. In fact, some people believe that's how the Ice Ages have occurred. The conveyor belt has been interrupted. I think it's interesting that something so big and so powerful uh, has drawn so little uh, public interest. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, again, it's drawn a lot of scientific interest, but scientists basically write for other scientists. And I, I think one of my goals was to sort of get the Gulf Stream out of its sort of narrow point of view and bring it to a bigger audience. Well, Professor Ulansky, thank you so very much.
Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Stan Ulansky is a professor of geology and environmental science at James Madison University. His new book is called The Gulf Stream. Coming up, renewing a nation ripped by civil war with Renewable Radio. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. From one of the most remote places on the planet, a familiar sound. Radio, a critical link empowering the people of southern Sudan. This is the voice of the community radio. This is your community radio. For more than two decades, southern Sudan was the scene of one of the longest-lasting wars of the 20th century. Before it ended three years ago, nearly two million civilians were killed and four million southerners were forced to flee their homes. Now people are returning, and radio is helping to heal the nation. John Musa is a reporter with Internews in southern Sudan. Internews is an international nonprofit organization that works to improve access to information for people around the world by fostering an independent media. Nuba Mountain is a part of Sudan. It has never seen a development before and after independence of Sudan. And it was the dream of Nuba people to have radio because it's a simple way to give a message. In the case of Sudan, Internews built four radio stations in the Civil War torn south and powers them with sustainable, renewable energy. Deborah Ensor is Internews' program director in Sudan. Since um, the war ended in South Sudan uh, about three years ago, there's no real infrastructure here. There's no way for people to get information. Um, there's not a lot of printing presses. There's not new, a lot of newspapers. Uh, a lot of people can't read because there hasn't been schools in South Sudan for many, many years. So uh, radio is, is a really great way to reach people. Well, radio is a really powerful medium, but how do you get power for your radio stations? As I was saying earlier, there is no infrastructure in South Sudan, or very limited infrastructure, uh, which means there's no electricity. So everything is powered by generators, and a generator is expensive, and it's, they're uh, somewhat difficult to maintain. So in some of our stations, we use uh, solar and wind power. Sudan is a very hot place. It's very dry um, half of the year, and so the sun is a really, really great way to power some of the stations. Some of these radio stations are located in incredibly remote mountainous regions. Yes. Our station in Kauda, which is in the Nuba Mountains in South Sudan, is a very remote location. Uh, it's very mountainous. So when you are trying to, to send out a radio signal, it, it's very limited in its range because there are so many mountains around. It just sort of gets stuck in the valley. So... We had to put our transmission tower in a remote transmission site, so way up on top of this hill in the mountains. Getting it up there was a whole other matter in and of itself. We had over a ton of equipment that had to go on the top of this mountain, including uh, six batteries that weigh about 60 uh, kilograms apiece, 
uh, four mass sections, more than um, 50 kgs of tools every day that had to go up and down. Uh, it's like a 90-minute hike to get up the hill. The temperature is 105, 110 degrees, and there's no vehicles that can go up there. So we hired uh, a lot of local women from the community. They carried up all of the equipment, something like 20 kilos per load on their heads, and it's amazing. I would go up this hill, and it, I would be so plum-tuckered by the time I get up there, and I'm not even carrying anything but myself and a bottle of water, you know, and these women are carrying uh, 20 or 30 kilos on top of their head, and they're walking barefoot or in sandals, and they're laughing and singing along the way, and, and it's very easy for them. Deb, why, why women? Didn't the men do this? You know, the men did other jobs. The men carried the batteries because it took four men um, to carry one battery because they were so heavy. Um, but generally speaking, women do a lot of the work. You sent us some audio from going up this mountain. Let's listen to it now. We're just approaching the voice of the community mast on the top of the mountain. This is Ellie Dobbing. She's our media training manager. We've walked up to look at it. You can hear the wind turbines spinning. Well, for this remote transmission site, it's it's 100% solar and wind powered um, because it is way on the top of this mountain and there's no other way to get any kind of source of energy up there. The station itself, which is down at the bottom of the mountain, about 50% of it is operated with solar panels and the other 50% is backed up with a generator. So, Deb, how do people um, power their radios if there's no you know, electricity available? There's uh, several NGOs that uh, give out radios as part of their projects, and they are these um, terrific little solar-powered and hand-crank radios. I understand you have a problem with roaming cows and goats affecting the station. How's that? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, all of these areas are agricultural areas. They, everyone has cows, everyone has goats. They sort of just free roam anywhere, and... <laughs> you're trying to record on the air and you can hear in the background the bleeding of goats, uh, you know, the feet of the cows padding by. So you have to be very careful when you're setting up sensitive equipment to make sure that it's, very, that it's fenced off very well so that roaming animals don't destroy it by accident. Deb, this is community radio that you're doing. This is run by the people who live there. Have, have they ever done community radio or any radio? Yeah, it is community radio, and that's what's so fantastic about this project, right? It's like you go to these communities, and people there are not journalists. You know, they're farmers, um, they are teachers, they are people who have been relocated after the war. Uh, they're just returning home after years of being away in refugee camps or being in other, in other countries. So it's just fantastic. They have this interest in helping their communities and in helping in peace and reconciliation in their communities by giving information. So we train them completely from scratch. How to open the computer, how to turn it on, how to get audio, how to edit, how to interview. It's just amazing when you hear the output. The communities are just thrilled with these stations. You know, they're so excited to hear them. It's fantastic. It's just the enthusiasm and the excitement for people to be able to hear radio and to hear it in their own language. We broadcast in uh, more than 10 different languages. It provides them with information about so many things, things like early marriage, you know, and, and why is it important for young girls to stay in school? You know, if there's a 
malaria outbreak, the, the station informs what to do and what, where it's happening. And it does a lot of really funny, great, wonderful little things too. You know, they have these community hours where people in the community can just come into the station and make announcements on the air. They talk about um, their lost cows. They come in to sing folk songs and they just really grasp onto it and, and, and really participate. I've uh, consulted with Internews overseas, and, I, and I've worked with them at setting up radio stations um, around the world. Um, where does it go from here, Deb? Um, what we're trying to do is to build the capacity of the staff and of the community to be able to run the station on their own. The idea is that at the end of the day, Internews will leave, and these stations will remain behind, and there'll be a cadre of journalists that are able to put together accurate and fair and interesting information for their communities and that they can do it on their own. Deborah, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Bruce. I appreciate it, too. Deborah Ensor is program director for Internews in Sudan, where the wind and sun are powering radio stations and empowering people. Well, tis the season for Santa and shopping trips to toy stores. Tis also the season for scary stories about toxic toys and the safety of gifts for kids. This year, for the second time, the nonprofit Ecology Center in Michigan has come up with its healthy toys list. It's a hit list of sorts for the holiday season, and Jeff Gerhardt is the toxic campaign director for the center. Well, we tested about 1,500 toys, and the funny thing about toys is they don't come in with ingredient lists. You can go to the grocery store, you can look at uh, food or cosmetics or many other products, and you can find out what's in them. With toys, uh, you don't know. So you actually test the toys to see what they're made of? Yeah, we conducted uh, close to 5,000 tests on the toys, and we identify nine different chemicals in the toys that we consider chemicals of concern. And these include obvious things like lead and mercury and cadmium, as well as a handful of other chemicals that we're concerned about. Well, what was the number of toys out of the 1,500 that you tested that uh, you considered unsafe? We found that one-third of the toys we tested had significant levels of the chemicals of concern that we looked at. One-third? yeah, so that's that's the bad news. That's entirely too many. Well, I see the on topping your list of the ten worst toys for lead. There's the Disney Three Heart and HM Graphic Necklace, a Hannah Montana toy, and and my kid loves Hannah Montana. Should we not get this? Well, we find jewelry is one of the most contaminated product segments out there. It is far more likely to have elevated levels of lead. We found a lot of Hannah Montana high school musical jewelry that had elevated levels of lead. We emphasize that it's not just lead that is a hazard in children's products. This year we also tested for bromine compounds in these products. Brominated flame retardants is a hazardous group of flame retardants that we look at. And we found that uh, almost 3% or 45 of the products we tested had elevated levels of these, these chemicals in them. And these are completely unnecessary. You can make children's products that comply with flame retardancy standards without the use of these chemicals. I noticed that on your list, number five is the Wii by Nintendo. Uh, many electronics, game consoles, as well as items you would not consider toys, TVs and and stereos and other electronic components use flame retardants in, in circuit boards and other components of the electronic. We actually found more of these compounds this year than we did last year, and that's why we, we're pushing for more broader regulatory reform. 
Well, last year, Congress actually responded to, to your list, and uh, they're going to change things in 2009. Now, that's next year. Yes, the Consumer Product Safety Improvement Act was passed this year. Its main provisions will come into effect on February 10th of 2009. All of the products that would be illegal under that uh, regulation are actually on the shelf right now. Now, who are the villains in this? I mean, where are these products that are, that are unsafe coming from? About 80% of the products we tested and 80% of the products on the market are from China. But when we look at the statistics in terms of where we're finding high amounts of lead or other chemicals, we actually don't see a significant difference. The point we like to emphasize is that this is a wholesale problem, and we're seeing toys coming from all over the place with elevated levels of lead. Well, you tested uh, 1,500 toys. Two-thirds of them are not bad. Uh, What are some of the good ones? We recommend unpainted wood toys. The the fabric toys and plush cloth toys are are good choices. And as I mentioned before, avoiding children's jewelry um, is, is another good choice people can make. Well, Jeff, I want to thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Jeff Gearhart is the Toxic Campaign Director of the Ecology Center. You'll find a link to their list of safe and unsafe toys at our website, LOE.org. The tune's familiar, but you won't be hearing this version of the holiday standard in your neighborhood shopping mall. No, this one is from Nature Herself. It's on a compilation called Wild Christmas. It was released back in 1991 by Phil Orberg and Bernie Krause. The album has long been out of print, but you can download it from the Internet. This album really consists of just animal sounds. There are no synthesizers, no traditional instruments. And we managed to put this together by going through this uh, large archive of material that I have and finding ones that kind of fit the voices of more traditional musical instruments. The intro is made of dolphins. And of course the lalas are a parrot, Molly the parrot. And you have the baby mountain gorilla that was recorded in the late Diane Fossey's camp at Karasoki in uh, Rwanda. And you have the snapping shrimp tapping on a music stand saying, come on, guys, let's get it together. We would take a parrot or a walrus and uh, we'd sample the sound. We'd do a, a small recording, a short recording of each of those voices. And then we'd put it into a MIDI synthesizer and establish a range of frequency around it, like maybe two octaves for the walrus or an octave for the parrot, and give it an octave range. And then we would just play it like we would play a normal instrument. One of the neat things about Amazing Grace is that it begins with sounds that I recorded in the Amazon at a place called Kilometer 41, which is a research station north of Manaus, which is kind of midway in the Amazon. (laughs) 
And there's also a bird there called the common potu. And the common potu is a melodic bird that does kind of a bluesy sound and, um, and has a bluesy melody. And so we wanted to include that as kind of a reference point mixed in with all the other animals that uh, you hear in that soundscape. The key is always to find a way to uh, bring out the Western musicality in these animals. And it's surprising how many animals do have this musical quality. When we were recording in places like the Amazon or Africa, what we found was is that these animals all voice together, all sing together in relationship to one another, much like instruments in an orchestra. And one of the ways that we wanted to bring this to people's attention was through albums like A Wild Christmas, where we actually take the animals and group them together in traditional musical form so that people can actually hear them singing together. Bernie Krause sampled the natural world for A Wild Christmas. Living on Earth's Eileen Belinsky produced our tribute, and you can find the music online at wildsanctuary.com. On the next Living on Earth, we report from Poznan, Poland. It's where delegates from around the world are trying to come up with a new treaty to deal with climate change and disruption. It won't be easy as nations have conflicting demands and priorities and wait to see where President-elect Barack Obama will take the United States. The cold winds of Poland and a warming planet next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Meet Trittage, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Gavoni. Our interns are Sandra Larson and Jesse Martin. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. Our executive producer is Steve Kerwood. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs around the world. Uncommon heroes dedicated to the common good. Learn more at skoll.org. 
and Paxworld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Paxworld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.